I'm Jack Cohen, the Associate Rabbi at Hampstead Shul, and this is Community. In this podcast, I get to speak to some extraordinary people from the Jewish community about themselves, about religion, about everything else. This is a DK production, so sit back, turn up the volume, and enjoy. In this episode, we're going to speak about sexual abuse and rape, and so therefore, listener discretion is advised. Our guest is Sophie Max, who is an actor, writer, producer, and activist. Sophie was raped as a child, and in this podcast, she bravely shares her story with us and important insights and educational messages alongside some of her activism work. In the episode, she recommends further resources for those affected by these issues, and we've put them as links in the show notes. We start by discussing how we came to do this episode in the first place. Let's start with how this all came about. So we had um, the tragic the tragic case. Then the CST reached out to various schools and said, we need to have um, training to protect, to help women protect themselves from these kind of uh, instances. And that's kind of where you come in. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So... Um... I was obviously talking quite a bit about uh, Sarah Everard and, and everything that was happening because of a lot of the activism work that I do. And my grandma, actually, who's a member of the shul, sent me the email invite that she got from for the CST event. And because of the conversations that have been going on and because of, you know, where, where I was at with everything, it, it really annoyed me. So I wrote an email to the shul and also to the CST and basically said, like, this is not the way to go about doing what you're trying to do, essentially, um, and, and protecting women and being part of this conversation. Like, this is not the way to do it. Because, again, this, like, narrative of the female self-defense clause as a way of for women to protect themselves is... Like actually ends up putting the onus on women to protect themselves when actually women have been doing self-defense and like not walking home alone and, you know, doing all of these things to try and protect themselves for years. And it doesn't help. The only way that this helps is if we actually put the blame where it's supposed to be, which is on the men that like catcall or follow or harass or um, are violent towards women. So... In the wake of that case, because also the thing about Sarah Everard that really kind of struck a chord with with me and with so many people I know is that she did do everything right. You know, she called her boyfriend on the way home. She was wearing brightly coloured clothing. She was walking in like a fairly well lit like public area. She she did everything right, essentially. Everything that we're told to do in terms of protecting ourselves and it didn't work. So that's what I wrote to them and basically got, uh, in long story short, got replies back saying like, yes, we see that now. <laughs> and uh or like we see your point and i ended up getting invited to speak through the shul about the the issue in kind of a series of talks they were doing about that 
Yeah, so that's that. That's when um, Madeline. I couldn't be there, but Madeline told me. Madeline, who's the chairman of the shul, told me, Jack, you've got to take a listen to this, and I was blown away. But before we get to that, I do just want to go one step back because, um, you know, as a man, you know, walking around in the streets late at night can sometimes can sometimes be daunting. But the idea of having a checklist to go through, you said Sarah Everard did everything right, and that implies that there's a checklist out there and you mentioned some of those things yeah I mean there's a narrative that we get told that I mean I remember getting told when I was you know as young as you know 13 14 15 going to my first parties or whatever um or you know going to like going to little like house parties with friends or uh, you know anything that I was doing as like a very young teenager which was like don't travel alone at night on public transport don't walk alone at night don't wear dark clothing also don't wear anything that's too short or revealing when you're walking don't walk with headphones in Uh, put your keys between your knuckles don't be on the phone when you're walking but also you need to make sure that people know where you are the whole time that you're walking what else walk in like only very well lit areas don't leave your drink unattended don't drink anything that's given to you by someone else that you haven't poured yourself. <laughs> I don't know if I can think of anything else off the top of my head, but like that's a long list that you're given as a 13-year-old or whatever going out to see some friends. Right, so for you, does that come from parents? Does that come from multiple places? Everywhere. Like that, come, that definitely comes from parents. It definitely comes from schools as well. It's what all like young girls, when, I mean, when I was growing up anyway, were getting told. Right, which is obviously something that, at least for me, completely like, I was, I was perhaps maybe told, don't um, take your phone out um, too much on public transport because someone might mug you. That was probably the entirety of the, of the of the conversation. So it's weird that there is this kind. Of, it's almost like from, from from my perspective, there's a hidden world of like these are the halachas, <laughs> these are the the laws of how you are supposed to carry yourself. Yeah, um, I mean, I think I saw a thing on. I think it was on Twitter. I can't remember where I saw it, but it was a um, like someone had done a survey of women of like what would you do if like all the men disappeared for like twenty four hours. And the most common answer was go for a walk at night or go for a run at night. <laughs> that was like the most common answer from like a survey of women. Right. So, so where we are at the moment is, is that the, that you've, there's this, the, the problem is real and it's being fed into the, the narrative is creating more problems because the emphasis is being put on the women to prevent um, themselves being attacked as opposed to being put on the, which just sounds, I mean, so, so logical. And, um, then, you know, it's surprising that my education, and I wonder if you know, if this is changing now, didn't include the inverse of what, of, of your education, which is, you know, when you're out at night, don't, um, attack anyone, (laughs) which just doesn't, you never told that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is there is also this narrative where like people people don't want to think that anyone they know would do that stuff, including you know the kids that they teach, their own children. So I think that's that kind of prevents almost like prevents that that narrative from taking place. Is like you don't want to think that 
someone that you know or someone you raised is doing this stuff or would ever do this stuff, obviously. I mean, there's also this narrative that, like, all all violence against women kind of is, you know, scary men in alleyways. It's often not. It's often someone you know. No one wants to think that anyone they know is doing this stuff. But... 98% of young women in the UK said that they've been sexually harassed. And that's not like one scary guy running around the UK harassing everyone. Like, that tells you about the scale of the problem. And so it definitely is someone that you know, or right. <laughs> someone in your community, someone in your family, someone you're friends with. It is that person. And there kind of isn't a way around that anymore. I mean, on that point, we can, I mean, that, I think we, ha we have to kind of move into some of your story, which you touched upon during the conversation with Madeline. And, and I know we spoke about, I think one of the things that might be useful, or if this can provide some sort of um, forum or platform, is just how much, you know, like men are unaware of um, in terms of, the realities of how these things uh, go down. And I think one, there are several striking elements to your story, but the, what, the one element which struck me the most is right at the beginning of your story. And um, if you feel comfortable um, just kind of talking about the election and watching the election on TV and, and what happened. Yeah, so I was, um, I was living in New York for a while and... I there, there was an uh, event in the US in 2018 where they were doing the hearing for the new Supreme Court uh, Justice, Brett Kavanaugh, who did in the end get confirmed for the Supreme Court, which is a whole issue. Oh, so sorry, I thought it was the election. But, um, I, th I didn't realize. OK, fine. No, it wasn't the it wasn't the 2020 election. It was the um, it was Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme right, Court right, hearing right, right. Um, because he so he'd been nominated by. Uh, Donald Trump to the Supreme Court and then he was accused by uh, Christine Blasey Ford an incredible woman he was accused by her of sexual assault uh, and a few other women who remained anonymous but Christine Blasey Ford kind of put her name to it uh, and they they gave a testimony in his Supreme Court hearing which you know I've experienced my fair share of sexual harassment and uh, assault and stuff as, as an adult and a lot of my friends have as well. And so we all kind of agreed that that this narrative was really upsetting and that watching this hearing would be too upsetting. So we wanted to go out and avoid it, which was very, very difficult because it was playing on every screen everywhere in the whole of New York City. So we ended up in this pizza restaurant, me and me and a friend, and we were sitting at this restaurant and it was playing on the TV screen in the corner and I was very much trying to ignore it. But um, but it was there. And basically, at, during that meal, I started having very intense flashbacks. We left. I went home to where I was living at the time. And they basically continued consistently for about three days. So I, I like, couldn't see. Uh, it was like I had like just images flashing in front of my eyes for like solid three days or so. I couldn't eat anything. I was crying all the time. Like I didn't sleep because I was just seeing things. And I had no idea what what was going on. 
So I went to see my therapist and I kind of took this with me and, and said to her, you know, what, what is going on? I don't know what's going on. And we kind of very slowly untangled what, what was happening, which is that I was having flashbacks to um, a series of sexual assaults that um, rapes that I experienced uh, as a child. And we kind of untangled uh, what what had happened vaguely, and it and it was very vague at the beginning, and like I I didn't have any details or anything, but I just kind of knew and had like little flashes of of things, and it's kind of become clearer over the time that I've been uh, working on it, um, and working through it. But yeah, we basically discovered together almost that I. Uh, that I had PTSD and that I had been raped starting when I was 10 years old, but also when I was 11 and 12 by um, a man 30 years older than me. So he was uh, around my parents' age at the time, multiple times over the course of three years. So yeah, that was, that was that, um, yeah, and I'd basically forgotten it for a decade. So you were tw- you were around twenty at the time. I was in my yeah. I was like twenty 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 one maybe twenty twenty one something like that. And your brain does an amazing thing. It's a scary thing, but it's an amazing thing where basically if there is something very traumatic that happens, your brain can completely block it out and forget it in order to be able to function it doesn't forget it of course like when now when I look back on on some of my behavior at that time it was clear that there was there was something going on but basically over the intervening years my brain essentially forgot it in order to for me to function and then I guess at a time when it thought that I could deal with it and when it was triggered by what was going on in the world um it kind of came back so that was the firstly thank you for 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 sharing that with us that's you know incredibly brave um but the the ele- that was the element that you know for me was super surprising there's no you know it, not that there are many assumptions about these things but the idea that um you know someone could could be raped and then that would be and end up being suppressed so they would spend as you did 10 years of your life without that element that defining element of your or a defining element of your of your childhood being with you in a conscious way is just you know is 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 completely incomprehensible um it's a very very strange experience in a lot of ways firstly um obviously remembering it as an adult i'm a very different person now than like my 10 year old self. I, I, I remember I've, I've looked at, I, I don't love looking at pictures from that time because I look very unhappy. Uh, well, now I can see that I look very unhappy, but I'm, I'm a very different person. I look different, like my body is different. There's a lot about me that is very different from obviously a 10 year old child to being in my twenties now. And it's very strange because you obviously hold trauma in your body, but and and it and it happened to me but it happened to me in a very different body and person than i am now 
And so it, it obviously still has an effect, but there is this very strange dichotomy of like having to process what happened while like a, a, a large distance away from from the person that it happened to. So that's very strange. I mean, also, there's a lot of my, essentially my teenage years, my preteen teenage years that is very foggy. Like it really does create huge memory gaps. And yeah, it's the kind of thing where I could like talk about things that happened to me as a teenager and and they're very foggy. And I, you know, if someone, there was a line in a TV show I was watching, Feel Good by Mae Martin, which is a very, very good depiction of PTSD and trauma. Um, the best one I've ever seen, really. Where she talks about, you know, I could tell a story about my teenage years, but if you had a gun to my head and asked me if it happened, I couldn't tell you. I obviously don't feel like that about what did happen, but there's a, there's a lot in that period that is very foggy because of that and because my brain was just like, nope. So, so hypothetical question. Um, you said, which I thought was also very interesting, that your, your brain lets it out when it sensed that you might be ready to process it. And so everything you're talking about, the distance between you then and you now would that be part of the now you're ready because there is some buffer? I mean, that was something that was told to me by my therapist at the time. I, I don't know if that was kind of a way of comforting me and telling me that I could deal with it and we were going to deal with it or whether that was kind of a fact. But I think it was having an effect on my life and it was having an effect on me, even if I didn't know what it was. And I don't think that kind of continuing for a long time without dealing with that was really a possibility. So what, when you say, I mean, when you talk about dealing with it, what can that, what can that even look like? Well, I don't know is the answer. I think it looks different for everyone. I think kind of firstly, like accepting that it happened and talking about it is part of it for me. I think also accepting that like no amount of working on it is going to make it okay. I mean, obviously everyone who's experienced it is going to have a different experience. And I, I don't want to kind of be speaking for anyone except myself, but for me anyway, I don't think it's going to, I don't think it's ever going to be okay. And I don't think I'm going to get to a point where I'm not angry about it because I don't think I should, because I think it is, I don't think it's the kind of thing. And I said this at the very beginning to my, to my therapist when we were talking about, um, when we were talking about dealing with it, where I said, I feel like a lot of, a lot of work is to do with like getting over it, getting past it, kind of accepting. But I don't see that as a, as a reality for me, because I don't think I should accept it. Because why should I have to accept that or be fine with that? I shouldn't ever have to say like, oh, I was right when I was 10 and I'm fine with that. I'm not fine with it. No, I'm really angry about it. And I'm going to be angry about it. I'm going to stay angry about it. I can deal with my PTSD symptoms and what my coping mechanisms are for those and kind of how I manage triggers and kind of take care of myself in day-to-day -day life and in situations that might be upsetting but I don't think that dealing with it for me anyway is going to involve getting past it
this might be, you know, this is kind of question which I'm, which I'm assuming is so obvious. It perhaps doesn't even need to be asked, but when you talk about your anger, are we talking about the stolen childhood? Are we talking about the way you have to manage your life now with the, with triggers and PTSDs? Are we talking about the fact that these things happen? Are we talking about the fact that society, and I want to discuss this with you because you talk about how society kind of creates a culture where this is, um, in a sense promoted. What's the, where's the anger? I'd say kind of all of the above. I'm really angry at him. Of course. I'm angry at the people in my life at the time that maybe saw things and didn't follow, not saw things in terms of that, but saw things that nowadays, if you've kind of, you know, done the work that I have where, where there, there are actually very obvious signs. Well, there is a, there's a list of signs that children can be exhibiting if they're, if they're dealing with something that they maybe don't know how to talk about um, or, if, or if they are being abused. So signs that were missed and I'm, I'm angry at, at people that missed those and the years of not remembering it when I could have actually just been dealing with it. Um, if it was addressed immediately, I'm angry at, yeah, the, the world that allowed that to happen and allows it to happen to like a way larger amount of kids than we think. I'm angry at the legal systems and the processes in place or not that don't really protect people at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm angry at a lot of things and just like the, the world that let that happen. To a 10-year-old. Yeah, to a 10-year-old. I mean, to anyone. I mean, you know, things that happened to me when I was in my late teens, early 20s are, are no worse or, you know, are, are not, um, are no better. But I did have more of a language and kind of avenue for dealing with them. So in terms of um, just coming back a little bit to things that are perhaps um, unknown or unexpected or not thought about, one thing is that your perpetrator was a close friend of family. And I should say at this point, you've, you've written actually um, a, a very eloquent article about this whole experience in, in the blog, I am Arla. And, and there you describe how he was incredibly charming and had groomed not only you, but also the family structure around you. So and that and that enables you to have someone who will perpetrate these things and who will be the very person who no one will believe could have perpetrated these things so that again was a big surprise yeah i think there is this this narrative that i think people uphold to make themselves feel safe as well which is that rape is perpetrated by scary crazy men in dark alleyways that we've never met before and just you know it's they just attack you that's not the case like it can be the person that you think is like the friendliest most charming funny person that is actually doing that stuff because people who are abusers are very very good at hiding the fact that they're abusers otherwise how would they get away with doing it like you get away with it by people thinking that it could never be you that would do that. And also, you are very good at compartmentalizing. 
I mean, again, you know, I'm not a psychologist and I don't want to pretend that I am, but from, you know, conversations I've had with with my therapist, there it is generally accepted that pedophilia is not okay. That kind of has been generally accepted for a long time. But people that do that, like clearly have some kind of amazing compartmentalizing skills where they don't feel shame about what they've done because if you felt shame for that, you wouldn't be able to function. So yeah, you can very easily be a charming, fun, funny, friendly person with, you know, stable relationships and children and family and friends and holding down a great job and still do that stuff. Which again, I think adds to to put it, put another spin on, and also not you know qualified in this. But you spoke about uncertainty a moment ago, and we hate uncertainty. And if I can't categorize people and say, well, this person's safe, that makes me uncomfortable. Which leads me on to a really important question, which is when you've got a whole host of celebrities who, in the last however many years. Um, have been have had multiple accusations leveled against them um, but specifically those who um, people will rush to their defense um, you know there are many um, many different responses people have to that and everyone you know you, we you know everyone everyone has their own their own take but in the I I think it's in in that I am Arla, uh, blog post you wrote about that as well and what your take is on that and I wanted you to say that sure so yeah again like it it, that is a huge discussion you're right in terms of kind of can we still enjoy these movies this music whatever personally I can't that's that's my personal thing that it, it, it is quite black and white for me at the moment in that way but um what I find most important about the whole that whole thing is so the people that very bravely come forward against someone who is well known and well loved generally in the world, but is not, you know, a personal friend of anyone's. You know, to use the famous example Harvey Weinstein, he's not a personal friend of anyone I know. <laughs> no one I know has any kind of connection to him personally, other than maybe liking some movies he's produced, for instance. And I think that when people rush to the defense of someone that has been, someone famous who's been publicly accused of sexual assault or sexual harassment, to me, it makes me like, it makes me think because this is not even a person that they have a personal relationship with, how would they react if I told them my story? If they can't condemn someone that they don't know and have no personal stake with how like would they do the same for for my abuser and my story it makes them not a safe person to talk to about my experience because they are willing to overlook that stuff in someone else so so you have this situation where you know, someone might say, well, you know, taking a, a, a celebrity case and people have made accusations and we should be able to discuss that case in total isolation um, and weigh it up and see what we think and say what we want to say. Um, 
but your point is that actually no, because those conversations are happening at family meals and at all sorts of spaces where there might yeah. be someone who is young or any age who has gone through something like this, who, who is not able to share it and wants to be able to share. But now they hear yeah. that that perpetrator is, is, is always going to get the benefit of the doubt. And so it's not yeah. an environment where they want to be able to share. But also the, the a side effect of a perpetrator getting the benefit of the doubt is saying that the person that accused them is lying or is doing it for attention or, you know, whatever excuse you're giving for that person, which is firstly not the case. There's literally no positives <laughs> except for anything like personal for yourself to kind of publicly condemning someone or going to the police and that whole process, which is horrifically re-traumatizing in a lot of ways. So there's no way it's for publicity. Firstly, that that excuse annoys me. But yeah, part and parcel of, of saying, of giving someone the benefit of the doubt is saying that you don't believe the person that accused them. And if you don't believe that person, how the hell are you going to believe me? Right. I think that, yeah, I, I think that's it's just, again, important uh, things that perhaps, you know, people wouldn't think about is is who's 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 listening and what are the impacts of your attitudes and it could be in your own family you know what's the impact that that's going to have to 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 you know your daughter or your son when they hear you and they know that you know or they they suspect that the perpetrator will get the benefit of the doubt and they will be thought of as a liar yeah i mean also there are these excuses tied up in that like there are a lot of rape myths and stuff that are that are tied up in in a lot of the ways that we excuse um perpetrators stuff to do with you know what a person was wearing shouldn't have gone in there in the first place um why do they take so long to speak up about anything which are all things you know that i've heard and i've you know i've questions that i've fielded from people very close to me in terms of parts of my own experience like why didn't you say anything sooner things like that and there and there's as I've mentioned, a whole host of reasons for doing that, that, um, yeah, I think any kind of use of these, these myths and excuses to try and excuse someone who's, who's been accused is, makes it very unsafe for anyone who is a survivor who's in that conversation. For, you know, in any situation where someone is bearing their soul to another person, it's a very sensitive moment. And, you know anything um any any forget having someone saying oh but blah, blah, but that ne there needs to be a space to be accepted and to be heard in order to be able to fully express you know anything you know all all the more so something as sensitive as this and so again it's just so important that whatever hang-ups people might have themselves in situations to be able to put them aside and to be uh to, to confront such things um you know head on with an with an open mind and an open heart and open ear it's not necessarily about you it's about the person who's sharing with you and there is so much in in all the lists of the things that you know are ang the the directions of the anger we could pick on every single one of them and open them up um but the one thing that i was curious about and i don't fully understand but you do hear over and over and over again is this idea that the victim carries guilt and shame and that you've written about and that is something that i've heard through family connections and things like this but it seems incomprehensible why would there be guilt and shame in the victim and what's that about 
Well, firstly, um, the way that, a way that a way that my therapist has described it, which I think is quite apt for for my own situation anyway, is that the person that is the, the abuser is shameless essentially they're not or they're, or they're they're refusing to carry their own shame and they kind of push that onto you or you being being me being anyone so that they so that they don't carry it themselves so they kind of push their shame onto you and and the fact that they are so shameless about it kind of creates more shame for for the victim in my experience anyway also all those kind of societal questions around that do blame the victim as i've said around ways that women should have protected themselves or you know what you were wearing why didn't you say something sooner all of these things uh create a lot of shame and and guilt because it makes it feel like it's your fault the, the way that the way that the subjects are so taboo and that society kind of hates talking about them also creates shame because it it feels dirty it feels like a dirty subject that you can't touch or you can't talk about and that, that creates shame the way that for a long time we haven't even talked about sexual assault it's i mean it's been going on for all of time <laughs> 2017 was when the me too movement the the larger me too movement started although it was started in 2006 by tarana burke but we kind of ignore that a lot um, but she was amazing. She originally started the movement in 2006, but 2017 is when it kind of became huge, which is four years ago now. And even still as part of that movement, which is which is part of kind of what I talk about, childhood sexual assault is still very much taboo, even within the Me Too conversations. We kind of hate talking about it. I mean, also the way that the media and the world frames these talks about sexual, these conversations about sexual assault and rape, it's been something I've been reading up into a lot recently. We talk about how many women were raped rather than how many men raped women, for instance. Obviously, rape doesn't only happen to women, it happens to people of all genders, but it is essentially a gendered crime in terms of the perpetrators are the majority of the time men. But the language is passive. The language removes a perpetrator from it. Also, the way that a lot of medias will talk about non-consensual sex there's no such thing as non-consensual sex that is rape it's like we wouldn't talk i saw an analogy that was like we don't talk about breathing swimming and non-breathing swimming we talk about swimming and drowning and that's and that's kind of how we should be talking about sex and rape so that also creates shame because it, it yeah it all kind of puts everything onto the victims so there seems to me underlying a lot of this this kind of element that there's no way that people can perpetrate such things. And especially when it comes to childhood. Uh, so there's all sorts of so childhood rape, child rape. So then there needs to come up with all sorts of other narratives to explain how these things occur. And a lot of those narratives end up putting blame on the victim. They were dressed this way. Um, I mean, it gets absurd to, to when it comes to children. Yeah. Um, but the point is that then even the victim, in some sense, despite their own wishes, imbibes these narratives or they carry them and they have to respond to them. And, and these narratives are not very helpful to their um, development, their recovery, whatever it, whatever it might be. Um, 
Okay, thank you for clarifying that one. Um, I think, you know, con- conscious of the time, and again, there's just way too much to, to, to go into it, so we're not doing anything uh, full service if, it could, if that was even possible. But I think there are a few things that are important to discuss uh, as we come to the close, um, even if uh, it's a little briefly. We spoke about, or you spoke about signs, you know, you were you're frustrated or angry that people did not pick up signs and there are signs and these things are known so it's important i think to um at least get this out there a little bit when you've got children who don't have the vocabulary vocab to to express what has occurred to them there are signs what are we what are we looking for and where can people find out about this there's a lot of places you can find out a lot of websites such as Rape Crisis, the Survivors Trust, One in Four, which is a charity that I've worked with that work with victims of specifically childhood sexual assault, will all have guides on their websites in terms of what you can be looking for. But kids will try to tell you. So firstly, listen to them. If like if so, if a kid says something as simple as, oh, I don't like that person. There's a reason why they don't like that person. I think what I said at the time was, which was, you know, the tip of the iceberg, but what I said to someone at the time was, um, he kissed me, which could easily be, you know, something completely innocent, but, but wasn't. And the fact that I, that, that was the the language that I knew to, to understand and to kind of tell someone about what was going on, which, you know, so, so listen to them. Changes in behaviour, self-harm we hate to talk about it with kids we don't like it's you know that's not a nice thing to talk about with children but but I was self-harming as a kid and there were things like other kids told their parents who told my parents and you know thought it was not true teachers saw did nothing because we really hate to talk about that stuff with kids as as we should because it's horrible but that can be happening in in lots of ways, not in the way that maybe we traditionally through the media think of, of self-harm, but um, in any way that was possible. I think when I was about 12, I was telling people that I just felt sad for no reason. So things like that, like there, there are things that you can, that you can hear people say and, and changes in behavior and things that kids do that, that anything that you think is strange, basically I'd follow up on. If you know, if it were me, but there is a lot more information on a lot of those charities uh, websites. And, and would the same, not the same signs, but would the for people who have become, uh, you know, have suffered um, rape and, uh, and abuse in later life, you know, as already, you know, teenagers or adults um, who aren't talking about it, are there signs for them as well? Was it much harder? Um. It depends. Not. I mean, I think it's the same with with anyone where there there probably are sometimes, and then there sometimes probably aren't either. And it can be a whole host of things, but they can be really, really buried, uh, and it can take a very long time to unravel. Which is why I think that sometimes people just need time, and which is why if someone does come with something, however old that is, if that's 40, 50, 60 years ago, whatever, that you're kind of coming to terms with and processing, the question of why didn't you say something at the time is not appropriate as as a question because it can take that much time. It can take any amount of time. We haven't had an opportunity to talk about 
um, in any detail what you do now, um, other than coming on podcasts like <laughs> like mine. <laughs> and, but, um, but practically speaking, you know, for people that want to take this, and and I think you know, the whole conversation, as you said, is leaves with so much uncertainty and so much discomfort that. It's, I think, a natural response to want to do something. So what can people, you know, in organizations or in their own individual lives look to be doing? I think, firstly, active bystander work is something that I'm getting more and more behind the more I think about it. I know people talk about things like catcalling or something as as low level and like, why, you know, why does it upset people? Why is it, you know, why is telling someone, telling a woman to smile on the street? like why is that scary why is that a big deal I think learning about like the pyramid and the way that 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 those are all part of the same normalization and um of rape and kind of rape culture that we live in um as a society is really really important and then challenging that in real time um I think there's nothing more powerful than like if a group of guys are I don't know at a bar having dinner watching tv whatever talking Um, and one of your friends says something that's inappropriate, um, in any way for in real time, one of their friends to say, Hey bro, we don't do that. That's not cool. Because that shifts the power dynamic in a way that, you know, that some random woman on the internet saying something is, is not going to, but really challenging your friends and family members and et cetera on, on their own personally internalized biases around sexual assault and rape, but also on their own behavior that maybe contributes to rape culture um, is really the most powerful thing as well as obviously intervening in situations outside. If you're at a bar, if you're in the street, you see something happening, it's not, you know, you learning self-defense and going up and like fighting for some woman. All you need to do is if you see a woman being harassed, Go up and ask her, like, ask her what the time is. Ask her, ask her for directions somewhere. Go and kind of interrupt that situation. And as soon as there's another guy involved, the, the likelihood is that that person will leave. Like, go and, uh, I don't know, pretend that you're old friends. Um, th- like, there's, there's a lot of info online about kind of active bystander work. So I think that's one of the, that's one of the biggest things. And also just talking about it and making yourself a safe space for for people to talk about their experiences um, without judgment, but also be talking to kids and and parents and friends and people in your community about this stuff um, because you actually never know who's experienced what and the statistics are a lot higher than than we think. Um, so that's can be really helpful. Um, looking at what the uh, the center, looking at the Center for Women's Justice's case uh, recently um, against the CPS and kind of the the barriers in place to reporting anything um, and. I mean, like in 2020 in the UK, there were, and granted, basically about the estimated, the estimate is that about 20% of rapes are reported to the police. 20% was 60,000 nearly in 2020. 
that were reported. Of 60,000, 2,000 were prosecuted, 2,000 something, and then 1,000 something, which is 1.4% resulted in any kind of conviction. So if you're talking to people about why they didn't report things, why they didn't come out and say anything, um, kind of having those conversations, like look into those statistics first because they will be very eye-opening. And also will tell you how many abusers there are kind of left roaming in, in our society without any kind of, uh, yeah, without any kind of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like prosecution or, or anything. Right, consequences. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. I mean... Accountability. Accountability. There's... Um, accountability. Each of, <laughs> again, each of those uh, elements are a world... Uh, in and of themselves to be discussed and broken down um but appreciate you bringing them all up and and there are actionable points for anyone who is listening or who will be listening to to take into their lives um and one thing obviously which you said and kind of came back to at the end is that especially for children um children shouldn't have to know about these things but they do have to know about these things and we need to find yeah. ways to discuss i mean them. teaching teaching consent and teaching about sexual assault and and rape culture younger than you think is necessary is also one and also you know you can talk to to girls obviously and and uh, about these things i think the kind of instinct is to talk to to girls or young girls in your life but talk to the boys like, talk to the boys about it because they're the ones who are not having these conversations at the moment and who the not-all-men crowd are kind of distancing from. And I think there is this narrative that is like, oh, I I don't do that. I don't rape people, so I'm fine. It's not my conversation. It actually is your conversation because, firstly, you are definitely contributing to some lower-level part of this, um, of this pyramid, uh, or your friends are, or and you're not challenging them, or whatever, and it and it's definitely your conversation. But also, not raping someone is like the basics of human decency. That's not something that I'm going to applaud you for, or that means that you can step out of the conversation. It's like you don't deserve a round of applause for not raping someone. It's, that's that's not just an basic. <laughs> yeah, that's not an achievement. Exactly. Like it's still your conversation. And women have been having this conversation for hundreds of years and it hasn't changed. And the reason it hasn't changed is because men haven't got involved. And now like time is up on that mm -hmm. is what I would say. So that all remains is, is for, for us to thank you for your vulnerability, for your strength, um, for your bravery, for sharing with us. And as you said, you know, trying to do your bit for the future generations as well. We hope this in some way um, helps with that. So thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Community with me, Jack Cohen. The producer was David Kurzer. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, comment and follow us wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>